Support for this podcast comes from Frito-Lay in the 2023 Snack Bracket Championship. The Frito-Lay Snack Challenge is underway, and fans are voting on their favorite snacks to crown champion. We're talking about primetime matchups between the best 64 snacks in the land. Will Ruffles Ridges reign supreme? Can Doritos defend their dynasty? Or will Smart Food use their smarts for a surprise upset? Only you can decide. Get in on all the action for a chance to win up to $1,000 or a year's worth of snacks. Let your snacks be heard. Just go to Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com to vote and enter for a chance to win. No purchase necessary. Sweepstakes ends April 3rd, 2023. Void but prohibited. Years worth of snacks awarded in the form of 52 coupons, each good for one bag of chips. See official rules at Frito-LaySnackIt.SBNation.com. Hey, this is Power Card, aka Project Pat, and you're listening to the Baltimore Beatdown Podcast, the best Ravens podcast on the planet. That's pretty incredible. In fact, it's La Marvelous. <laughs> Thank you guys. What is up, you guys? It is Jake here coming to you Monday night of Christmas week uh, here all by myself. Got the idea, a little bit of a wild hair to go ahead and throw together a little holiday highlights episode of our year in the Baltimore Beatdown podcast. I uh, just, you know, got the idea to do so because wanted to push some content out over Christmas. So actually not sure the day I'm going to be releasing this, but uh, like I said, cutting it together Monday night of Christmas week. So this might be a one-parter releasing on Christmas or thereabouts. Might be a two-parter uh, releasing on that day and then maybe stretching into next week with the second one. We've got a lot of content to work with here. I just started cutting it together. You're uh, first going to be hearing... From our interview with uh, Gordon McGinnis of PFF, recorded that right after the Ravens lost to the Titans in the wild or the divisional round, excuse me, last year. So, uh, starting out with that one, I'm just going to be jumping through some interviews, some highlights. Did some really fun type of shows. It was obviously a weird year with quarantine and everything. Kind of changed up a lot of things for us. And then Spencer's schedule changed with SIS during the season, so it was you know looked a little bit different than it did in our first year. But I figured at this point, you know, we're a pretty established show here might be, you know, kind of good to get with the trend of what, uh, what other shows do around this time of year, cut together some, uh, some evergreen content for you guys to look back on in our year in podcasting. So yeah, it's been a, been a weird, tough year. Uh, going to be fun to kind of look back on some of these memories, maybe a little strange in some other ways, but, uh, you know, I think it'll be a, a, ther- a therapeutic process for me and I hope it is for you guys too. And I hope you enjoy, uh, looking back at the strip on memory lane. Like we had a lot of interview shows and a, a lot of other different types of shows that I think people maybe selectively tuned in and out to. There was a lot of stuff going on this year, so I will not begrudge you if you did that. But this first one in particular, wanted to uh, start with this one, like I said, because it was at the beginning of the year, uh, right after right after that loss. And I think looking back at the numbers, I think I had looked at them and I was kind of surprised because it was a really good interview with Gordon. I, I had a little chat with him. Spencer was not on the interview, but uh, I had a nice chat with Gordon right after that game, and it didn't do a ton of numbers. And I was like, oh, wait, yeah, idiot. Like, nobody's going to want to listen to your podcast after the Ravens just suffered the, you know, maybe the worst loss in franchise history, who could possibly say. But it was a really cool interview. So I'm going to go ahead and throw in some of his audio towards the end of that, kind of discussing what went wrong in that Titans game 
and what he expected the Ravens to do moving forward. Kind of eerie. Sounds like he was pretty bang on with some of the stuff that he was talking about. So definitely uh, stick around for that clip uh, for this opening of the episode. Going to be plenty more after that. And then maybe jump back to that interview if you haven't listened to it because it's really good. But uh, without further ado, going to kick off the sort of holiday special here with our interview with Gordon McGinnis from PFF. You know, speaking of torturing Ravens fans, I guess we got to touch on the playoff loss a little bit here. You know, how would you sum up why they lost in such a convincing fashion in, you know, let's say one sentence? Uh, you know, I've taken a lot of flack on this, mainly from Titans fans over the last couple of days. I think bad luck is the is the the way to the way to look at it. You know, you look at what that game turned on, and we I talked about this with um, guys at PFF, and we we talked about how the Ravens lose in the playoffs and the way they with the way we saw them losing in the playoffs was being outscored by Patrick Mahomes and the Kansas City Chiefs um, or going up against a Texans team that just really clicks on offense and the Texans keep scoring on offense and they get outscored there against a Tennessee against a Buffalo against even a New England the only real way the Ravens were likely to lose was if they had some bad luck with say Lamar Jackson fumbling um, if they had some interceptions or turnovers in their own half of the field or some big returns and that you know the one thing we'd seen the Ravens or one of the things we'd seen the Ravens dominate throughout the year was fourth down conversions um and they were they were above you know the level that they were hitting on fourth downs was unrealistic to continue at so at some point you were always expecting a little bit of regression and I think in that game the tipped interception early on that led to a big return and then the the penalty followed by the the two fourth down fourth and one failures um those three plays alone completely changed that game um and i think people look at that game and everyone talks about derrick henry being unstoppable and i saw mina kimes tweet this i think yesterday or maybe even saturday night the tennessee titans had two drives that went for 35 or over 35 yards there was the the ryan Tannehill pass after the fourth and one failure um, and there was the drive at the 66-yard Derrick Henry run. Um, I, I think if you play that game again 10 times, the Ravens win it seven or eight times, uh, just because it was just one of those games that sometimes sometimes bad things happen and they just go against you. And it's really tough for a team that were 14-2 and two Super Bowl front runners for the first time in, in team history. It's really tough to look at that and... You know the the deflating fact of it it going so badly wrong, but I think if you look at that and what you'd want the Ravens to do differently next year, um, you just want them to not make those mistakes that happened or have that bad luck. If they don't have that bad luck, they're probably playing in the AFC Championship game. Yeah, I mean that's kind of the vibe I get from it is bad luck. You got balls bouncing off of guys' hands. You know the Titans, you know, making some really incredible plays. The guy. I think it was Johnny Smith with the corner of the end zone catch. That doesn't happen in a normal game. So it's and, and it reminds me a lot actually of that Denver game that you were in attendance for what six years ago, where everything kind of broke against the Broncos in a game that they really could have and should have won, and it broke for the Ravens. So they were able to win it. Um, but as far as like the front office and that game, how like what do you expect them to take from that game, and how aggressive do you think that they'll be? in trying to fix what went wrong if that's the way that they indeed do see it yeah I, I really hope they don't the one fear i would have coming out of that game is that you know we only had this one season of the ravens being aggressive with fourth down and um you know things like that and and also it's not not even just the fourth downs but they also were um 
passing the ball on early downs and things like that that just open up an offense significantly. My worry would be that they they turn around and, you know, retreat a little bit back into their shells and try and be a little bit more conservative, um, which I just don't think fits who they are as a team. Um, but I think I, they're a small team to and to understand that they don't need to make sweeping changes from that playoff loss. Um, and I think what they'll probably do is they'll just try and use the cap room they have. It's not you know, a huge amount, but it's enough to go out and improve that team. Maybe make a splash at wide receiver if it's an AG Green or someone else. You know, look to shore up some things on the defensive side of the ball as well. The, the one area I think they could probably look to improve upon um, is their strength against the run in the front seven. We saw a couple of times, you know, the, the times they lost this year were times where they got into a position where teams weren't chasing them and they had to chase teams. Um, and they were a little bit soft up front in the front seven, probably at linebacker more than anything else, whereby if a team had a two-touchdown lead on you, they can run the ball and they can take some time off the clock and they can do the things that, you know, the Ravens were able to do once they had a 14 nothing lead. Um, so I think they'll probably look to try and shore up the front seven a little bit um, just to try and stop that because if there was one thing that the Titans did well, it was once they had that lead early on, they were able to kind of suffocate the Ravens and um, take the air out of the ball and take a lot of time off the clock. Yeah, definitely. So, Obviously, it's it's a tough spot to be in. We're recording this the Monday after it happened on Saturday night, so it's it's a very sore subject. But uh, if there's anything positive that you think fans could maybe take from that one, despite how heartbreaking it all is, what would it be? I, I think it has to be Lamar. Um, I think in in my 14, 15 years watching the Ravens, I, I don't think I've ever the only other player I've I've, I've seen who is so exciting that can turn something into nothing in a split second is probably Ed Reed at safety. Um, what Lamar did this year was ridiculous. You, even just from a, a statistical standpoint, you know, breaking the breaking the Russian record, but at the same time leading the NFL in touchdown passes. And when I was tweeting about the game on, on Sunday, there were people telling me that, well, you know, it's different because he's not a pocket passer, this, that, or next thing. He led the NFL in, in touchdown passes from the pocket, from straight dropbacks without scrambling, without rolling out. No one threw more touchdowns than he did last year. Um, so the fact that he took such a huge step forward as a passer, um, I think is a great sign for the Ravens. And, then, you know, this year we saw Patrick Mahomes regress a little bit from um, a ludicrous stat line. So I think there's a fairly decent chance that Lamar Jackson will regress a little bit in terms of those ridiculous numbers. But I think the fact that he broke the record in only 16 games, he's probably going to threaten the Russian record again. And if he's even 75% of the passer that he was this year, um, they're, they're probably still somewhere, you know, at least 11 wins and still going to contend for a Super Bowl. This next one is a uh, quick bit from our chat with our guy, Daniel Oyafusi. He's the young beat reporter for the Baltimore Sun covering the Ravens. And I think some of the stuff going on at College Park, but mainly sort of specializing in what's going on at the castle. Uh, just a quick little bit that I was pretty fascinated by, uh, kind of discussing the dynamic and the evolution of John Harbaugh as a head coach, kind of right around that time that the interview was recorded. He had been described as like a player's coach, but that... <laughs> 
you know, if you know your history regarding him, that really has not always been the case, particularly with some types of personalities. So to see a guy like Jimmy Smith kind of dishing on that a little bit, I thought was interesting. And uh, Daniel expounds on it a little bit from his first person perspective. So here's Daniel Oyafusi from the Baltimore Sun. And in like the in terms of like leadership in that way, like looking at the coaching staff, I know Harbaugh recently got described as a player's coach. I think Zerebrek was uh, writing about this. And Jimmy Smith said that while that's true now, it kind of hasn't really always been the case. I know you weren't around from before, but how would you describe Harbaugh's approach with the players this past season, just seeing it up close and personal? I think um, open is definitely the word. And I think that's that's probably how a lot of um, other reporters have used the word that they've used to, re- to respond. I mean, you know, he, he's definitely hard on them. He expects, expects the most out of them. But I think he is very open, just stemming from last season. And obviously, I wasn't on the beat then, but just from his embrace of Lamar and his um, his willingness to to kind of shift the entire offensive approach and system to something that um, you know that was the complete opposite of what they're doing with Flacco. And then you see it even this season; they bring in a lot of young guys, and he's just he's just you know I feel like it's it's kind of made him younger in a sense. You know, you see him wearing Lamar's apparel gear. You see him wearing Marquise Brown's apparel gear. So he's he's just kind of been rejuvenated in a sense and really open to to um, to a lot of things um, in terms of you know looking at football. You got any cool stories on like interactions between him and players that we maybe wouldn't have seen in videos or anything like that? Uh, off the top of the he- top of my head, not that I know of. Honestly, just just surprised to just try to think some just. Uh, Dan can out of my head, but just but you can you can definitely see it, and generally with the way just he kind of interacts with players and um, the way the players speak of him, you know they 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 love him, you know they they go to war for him. There's never a time in the season where you say that you could say that this team wasn't trying or they weren't even putting it that effort. And even in the in the loss to the Titans at the end of the season, you know they were they were they were fighting hard, and that's just a testament to you know the lock that he the hold that he has on this team and how much they love him. Very quickly, had to throw this one in here. It's from our February 12th, 2020 episode, the Beatdown Awards, where we give out uh, our awards for the prior season, uh, whether that's for us, for the players, for the coaches, whatever. Uh, Just had to quickly throw in this take that, uh, you know, listen, I was patting myself on the back a little bit. I think I had been proven right at the time. And uh, the reason I'm putting it in here is because it feels pretty timely right now. We just saw this player that I'm about to be uh, discussing have – a minor, but uh, still very, very significant role in uh, a couple Ravens games recently and uh, a guy that we're both very fond of and uh, his star is rising. So here is uh, our clip from the Beatdown Awards, February 12, 2020. Um, but for me, it you know, let's just be honest. It started as a joke, but ultimately I think I legitimately had faith in Trace McSorley being a long-term viable backup here behind Lamar. And like, I don't remember a ton of people like seriously sharing that opinion. Like I remember Voss was pretty low on him in camp saying, you know, he couldn't, you know, throw, make the NFL throws. He, he didn't have the arm strength, but a year later, I mean, it seems like he's in the, uh, the long-term plans here after a strong preseason last year and RG three, it sounds like he's probably going to be leaving town at some point soon, maybe this off season, maybe next, uh, if he plays out his contract, but I think he's, uh, very well in line to be the next guy behind Lamar. So uh, shout out to me for my Trace United stake. Absolutely. We love Trace United. He's a little bit of an enigma right now. We don't know because he's all of a sudden he started falling in preseason and throwing dimes. And that's where the Boykin hype also came from. Uh, so we love Trace United. That's going to be the shining, glimmery uh, star of our preseason viewing next year. We'll be watching Trace United take the lion's share of snaps and seeing what he can do. 
Yeah, so uh, obviously had to pump our own tires there on our, our Trace United's take with him having a uh, really, really kind of significant role in this uh, sort of COVID era where the Ravens were hit pretty hard by the the disease and he had to kind of get in there. And then obviously the Lamar cramps, no cramps, Paul Pierce situation where he has that dime on third down to Willie Sneed. So Trace has weirdly played a little bit of a role here for the Ravens this season. So have to uh, have to give him his props and give us our props as well. Tough take there by Spencer, though, uh, on the preseason. He really should have foreseen the uh, pandemic that was going to cause the NFL to shut the preseason down. So bad job by him on that. But moving forward, next one is uh, our guy, probably our favorite guest. I think he's been on the show the most amount of times. Connor Rogers from Bleacher Report uh, dishing on the 2020 NFL draft. And I uh, didn't want to, like, go back and, like, find any specific, like, stuff on players. I don't think that's really anything you really kind of would need to listen back to. But he did have some fascinating stuff on the Combine. I think this was right pre-Combine in, like, uh, late February, maybe early March. He kind of dishes on the interviews and stuff and sort of the process of how all that plays out. As a guy who has been up close and personal with all of that uh, for pretty much his entire career doing the media and uh, just as a super talented, articulate, articulate guy, I think he's uh, fun to listen to on the combine. So here is Connor Rogers from uh, around the combine last year. Right. And expanding on the player team meetings a little bit for our audience who might not know, can you explain exactly what they are and what goes into them and, you know, what to expect in that room? Yeah. In terms of player interviews with teams. Yes. Yeah. So, I mean, the player is going to go, uh, meet with a team that that could be at a, a conference room in the hotel and and they sit down and there could be everyone in there from your general manager to your head coach if you want you know to the defensive coordinator offensive coordinator now you know um, your that position coach your director of player personnel if you have a vice president of player personnel and director of college and area scouts on and on and on you could fill that bad boy up so you could be sitting there you know, if it's me or you walking in, you could be sitting there in front of uh, quite a large group of people. Now, certain teams will also do the opposite and exclude a lot of people where you could be sitting there with three people. So, and everybody's got different energy. I've heard with Gruden, you know, players actually really like meeting with Gruden as much as he's tough on players. He's fun. They like his energy. And then you can be, I remember talking to Alec Ogletree last year. He did an event with us during draft week and Ogletree told me that it was Joe Vitt, who was with the Saints at the time. He's now with the Jets. I think as a linebacker's coach. He's, he's actually Adam Gase's father-in-law, small world. But Vitt is somebody who's like, he looks like your everyday guy on the street. He's not an overly big guy, but he's an older guy. He's, he said he was absolutely nuts. I mean, he'll scream at you. He'll yell at you. It's, it's almost like a boot camp style. So you can get a lot of different things. And then, and then you know, you could have somebody like Sean McVay, who's a little more calm. I think he's a little bit more, I get, you know, the word players coach gets thrown around a lot. That almost makes people sound like a saucy. And, and I think it's, it's more of just relating to the type of athlete that exists today. I mean, guys, I'm 28. And like, I'll be honest with you. Like I've had bosses in the past that are in their you know fifties or whatever, and we just don't have a lot in common. And then I've had bosses in the past that are a couple of years older than me and right. eye to eye on things. That's just, that's how it goes. Sean McVay's in his early thirties. So the players he's talking to, there's not some kind of generation gap that's, you know, astronomical. So a lot of people are different. And I actually side with the guys that try to relate to the players because I think you'll figure out more about them rather than just breaking them down like a drill sergeant. Yeah, so always great to hear from Connor. Uh, always gives some really, really tremendous info. And uh, a good friend of the show, I believe uh, the first guest 
that we ever had on the show, at least in the iteration of uh, me sort of running it as the host producer type guy. So uh, always, always, you know, tremendous to talk to him and uh, hopefully going to be getting him back onto the show here within a couple of months with draft season coming up and uh, really praying for him today. Today is the uh, 21st and the Jets just got that win over the Rams. So they are probably going to be missing out on Trevor Lawrence uh, by the way things are looking right now. So that's tough, but uh yeah, we, we always love having Connor on and uh, always appreciate the insight he gives into the draft and the combine. And speaking of that, next clip coming up is going to be from our guy Derek Clausen when he joined the show back on April 1st, it looks like. Uh, Derek is an awesome sort of scout QB expert that works for Roto World, big tape guy, and uh, really, really knows his stuff, really knows the draft as well. So we kind of dove into it with him. This one is a little bit more specific, and I wanted to throw it in because there was sort of this big debate surrounding the linebacker position. It seemed like the Ravens were going to be taking a middle linebacker early. And the conversation, funny enough, it kind of came down to Kenneth Murray, who obviously wound up going to the Chargers, Patrick Queen, who came to Baltimore. And uh, the other guy in the mix there was Malik Harrison, who also came to Baltimore. So they wound up getting two of those top three guys. But uh, the, the conversation at the top did seem to be between Queen and Murray as the first round prospects. And uh, Derek had uh, some really, you know, solid analysis on it that I enjoyed listening back to. And I think you guys will enjoy listening to in retrospect. I believe he gives queen a little bit more props than he does Murray. So uh, here's Derek Clausen from April 1st. Right. And then you see Patrick queen and Kenneth Murray seem to be these two names that are linked with Baltimore. And what you just said makes a ton of sense. I mean, do you have any preference between those two guys? I feel like I know already based on your Twitter, uh, but how far of a gap is it for you between, you know, the two of them, if there is a significant one. And I think I know your answer already. Yeah, I think the gap is massive. Um, Queen, I think, is not necessarily an elite linebacker prospect. I don't think he's as good as, like, um, Reuben Foster was coming out, for example. But I think he's really good. Um, I think he clearly has the range. He's proven he can read all types of different run concepts. His play and coverage is a little bit up and down but I was at least impressed that LSU asked him to do a fair amount of different things. And he seemed to at least show flashes of potential in doing them. Um, There's one uh, in particular, like an interception against Alabama where um, I think he's spot dropping in like a cover three and he sees them running a shallow underneath. And for whatever reason, it had to be like a film study thing. He instantly knows he needs to back up and bail to the opposite hash. Right. And he just picks off to a like, it seems like there's at least the peaks that you could work with. So maybe a guy like Martindale can, can get that out of him. So um, I have a pretty high standard for first round linebackers and I think he hits it. Um, Kenneth Murray is just, I think he's really just an athlete like that Oklahoma scheme. It doesn't ask him to do anything really. Only Um, plays forward. Yeah, exactly. Like, and anytime he got hit with a pulling concept, he just looked like he was not even playing the same sport which is a major issue to me because like when a linebacker, when all of his best plays are just like blowing up wide zone from the back, it's just like any decent linebacker should be able to do that. And so if that's where all your good plays are, you need to show me a lot more for me to believe that you're good because that's not going to cut it for me. And then for Murray, that's like all of his best plays. Um, And then in coverage, there's like this idea that Murray has coverage potential just because he's fast. Did nothing in coverage. Yeah, he doesn't do anything. Like, they ask him to chase the running back out of the backfield every now and then. He blew up some screens. And that's it. Yeah, like, that's it. He he doesn't he doesn't really spot drop at all. Like, he's almost never matching anything past, like, five yards. He just, yeah, like, the, the projection on him, I think, is 
insane for a first round pick and i probably wouldn't even take him in the second to be honest so really good stuff there from Derek that i found interesting to listen back to because it sounds like he was pretty spot on with queen you know he's coming here in his rookie season had some production some really big games he hasn't been without his warts though he's still developing as a player he's a young guy and that is something that Derek was uh, quick to point out that he believed that uh, queen could be a guy who developed over the course of his career and uh, obviously very very low on Kenneth Murray. I don't want to bag on the guy too much. I haven't really watched too much of him there with the Chargers, but uh seems like the Ravens might have uh, won out there, even though Murray wound up going well earlier than they were picking there at 28. But continuing on with this theme of the draft, I uh, want to throw it to this next one with our buddy, good friend of the show, Matt Waldman, who is uh, one of the great draft gurus out there on Twitter right now, running the RSP and uh, doing stuff with football guys and everything. Matt is uh, a good friend of ours and, uh, we always enjoy having him on the show. I think he's been on twice now. Hopefully going to get him on for this upcoming draft season uh, again as another sort of recurring guest that we love to talk to. So this is a, a little bit of a uh, bit from that one uh, from April 14th where we sort of chop up what the ultimate Ravens draft strategy was going to look like heading into that draft. I just think it's a little bit interesting to look back on and Matt is always great to listen to. So here's Matt Waldman. It's always interesting to me how that narrative can kind of go on a player to player basis as he is a positionless player or like a weapon or a matchup player versus this guy's a tweener without a position. Um, and I believe that just comes down to quality of play at multiple positions, but definitely I agree. I think a sneaky good fit for Isaiah Simmons would be the Browns at 10 if he falls that far. Um, but where do you have, I mean, the, the two kind of consensus guys in the media at inside linebacker, I don't personally agree. And I know a lot of people don't necessarily pin these guys as at one and two after digging into the tape, but where do you shake out with Kenneth Murray versus Patrick Queen? And do you expect both of them to go in the first round or something else? Yeah, I mean, I could see, I think Queen's going to go in the first round. Um, Murray, I could see where it might, he might dip a little bit. But, you know, the thing with, with them is that I think you get more, you have more of an athlete, I think, with Queen. With Murray, he's a guy that, um, I see him as a, you know, he's got good sideline to sideline pursuit. I don't know if it's necessarily great. Um, he can be a little step hesitant with his diagnosis between the tackles. Um, and that comes as a trait with also being patient. So the upside that he is kind of a patient guy. Um, he has a feel for routes working behind him as he drops into passing lanes. So it's interesting because I think Murray might be the more polished player um, in terms of all around skills. But I think that Queen is the guy who's got the more athletic upside and who maybe not be as tested with, say, some of the zone drops and some of the some of the work that he does. I mean, he's he's a guy that's I think the you know, the speed acceleration and fluid feet. He closes really fast um, and I think he cuts off passing lanes as a zone defender, but you don't see him much as a man coverage guy, whereas I think that, you know, that's something that they might want to see a little bit more of. Um, but I think that, you know, overall Queens probably going to get taken first. Murray would probably be taken after that. I think Murray's probably more closely to being a late first round, early second round guy. It's actually almost funny now looking back at how hard that sort of queen versus Murray debate was raging. I, you know, I remember it now, obviously having my memory jogged, but I didn't probably going into this exercise. So it's kind of funny looking back and seeing how that worked out in that you had these two guys that people were debating so 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 hotly and kind of looking at them as you know 
two players that could very much fit with this franchise. And of course they do wind up getting one of them and it uh, worked out pretty well because he's looking pretty good for them. But uh, there's going to be plenty of uh, draft stuff that I'm going to be cutting up and throwing in here, but it actually worked out that we had one of our, I think one of our favorite interviews, certainly one of our favorite player interviews heading into that draft week on April 22nd with Ravens offensive lineman, Patrick McCarry, obviously an undrafted guy from 2019. So Patrick was, uh, I found, really interesting. He had, you know, an interesting backstory and uh, him coming to Baltimore as an undrafted guy and playing well in his first year and obviously doing pretty well here in 2020. I thought that was a cool chat to look back on. So here's some stuff with uh, Patrick McCarry from April 22nd. Yeah, I mean, it sounds like your emotions were in a weird place. I can't imagine, like, being in that pivotal point in your life is a very important thing and people are kind of telling you to be negative about it and positive about it at the same time and, like, you ultimately know the outcome is that you're at best going to be a late pick. Like, I can't imagine that that was too easy. Yeah, for you. yeah, exactly. But yeah, I mean, you wind up undrafted free agent. So you mentioned you visited with the Ravens. Were you talking to any other teams to sign as an undrafted guy or was it kind of just them all along? Uh, it was, I'll say mainly them. I visited Miami as well. Um, but after I visited the Ravens, I was, I was a big fan of them, their coaching staff and just kind of the, the way they they ran, they ran things. Um, so, like I said, after the draft, I was really happy to get their call. Right. And, I mean, Coach Harbaugh, uh, once you kind of ended up filling in for Matt Scurra, who unfortunately was injured, but there was obviously a silver lining for you. But Coach Harbaugh went on the record and said it was a fluke and a joke that Pat McCarry went undrafted. Uh, was that, you know, kind of a culmination of some feelings, hearing a guy like John Harbaugh say that as you're going to go play in your first snap as an NFL regular season game? Yeah, I mean, I mean that was that was that was nice. Uh, I mean, I, I respect it too. But I mean, if maybe what if I was drafted and I didn't go to Baltimore, you know? So I always look at things in a positive perspective if I can. And I'm really, like I said, I'm really happy to be a Raven. Um, I hope I could continue my my career as a Raven. And if I got drafted to a team that maybe I wasn't as happy as or fortunate to, you know, be a part of, that's whatever. But I'm I'm, I'm like I said, I'm really happy that things worked out great. You know. God bless me a lot, and I'm, I'm raving. I'm really happy to be too. So it's awesome. I mean, I do have to know though. You spent your entire life in California up to that point. We're residents of Baltimore, yeah. so we kind of have to know what was the image in your head you had of the place when you realized you were about to head there that summer. Oh, I had no idea. I didn't <laughs> know the world could get so hot. I had no, it's so humid. I didn't know that was a thing. No idea. That was my first time on the East Coast. Yeah, I figured. I mean, it I seemed. Yeah, because looking at your bio, it's like L.A. up to Cal, and then you're just there the whole time, and then you hear about Baltimore, yeah. so you you kind of have no idea, hadn't seen The Wire or anything like that? Nothing. Jeez. No People probably yeah. say crab cakes or something. And then I remember training camp yeah. last year. Right, and training camp last year, you were right, was unbelievably hot and humid, and I was not in pads or anything standing there watching you guys. So I'm sure you're like, what is this hellhole that I've come to? Yeah, we were um, the two tall, yeah. sweaty white guys that uh, were just standing there looking awkward, if you can remember any of that. but <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, but uh, heading I'm into sure training. I'm... What's that? I'm sure that was like most of the people there. Yeah, so yeah, it's a, probably a good, uh, good point. Yeah, so Patrick was an absolutely awesome guest. If you guys happen to miss that one during the whole frenzy of draft week as we released it kind of right before the draft there, I'd highly recommend going back and checking out that episode from April 22nd. Really awesome guest, maybe my favorite uh, player interview to sort of 
pull back the curtain on these player interviews. Sometimes they're set up for us through the PR team, which we really appreciate. But like, we kind of don't really know the energy that the guy is going to be bringing into it based upon the fact that we didn't kind of book it face to face or sort of person to person with them. So him hopping on and being candid about like his family backstory, coming over from California, being an undrafted guy, and uh, just sort of having a, a really positive attitude and bringing some positive energy, I, I thought was great. So be sure to go back and check out that full thing if you have not already. And like I've been hinting at, that sort of leads into our draft content bonanza that we had going on there at the end of April. So looks like we had our 2020 mock draft, our final one on April 23rd. So I'm going to uh, cut together some highlights from that and then uh, all the pick analysis stuff that we had going on. We were doing this massive, you know, live streaming thing that we, that was kind of when we first started messing around with live streaming and posting our shows to YouTube was right around that time. So we were basically live streaming the entire time through the first couple of rounds and we would stop and, uh, not not even stop the stream. We would just like stop and record the show on there. So we had a couple of like instant analysis uh, reactions to some of the picks. So what I'm going to do is uh, go ahead and mash together a lot of our draft content and uh, just throw it in here for you guys. So stick around for that. Boom. Now we're on to the Baltimore Ravens, uh, the crab cake, rat, birds, whatever you want to call them. And <laughs> you crush that, dude. <laughs> crab cake, rat, birds. Uh, crab cake crows and number one kenneth murray is not going to be on the board here i don't think i didn't mean to do that number two if he is they'll take him and so kenneth murray kenneth murray interesting let me take a look at his board here i'm gonna go with michael Pittman. i hope so that would be awesome yeah so this is kind of a situation where I want this to happen, but I also feel like it could happen, and here's why. Uh, you and I, were not necessarily super plugged in, but we do have sources who have sources who have sources, and we have heard that they are focusing on offensive line. So the board, for me, has not fallen in a way that offensive line would really work. Uh, we also have, quote-unquote, heard that they're not necessarily in on Queen and Murray in the way that some people think they are. I feel like they are pretty zeroed in on wide receiver as well, and I feel like they are going to like somebody like Pittman for a lot of different reasons, and they're going to like the fact that he would be a tremendous fit within this offense. I think he could maybe take some of the snaps that Boykin was seeing last year. You still want to see Boykin develop ultimately, but this takes some of the pressure off. You can get a guy in there who's more complete, more ready to go. Michael Pittman to the Ravens at 28. So that was obviously our final mock draft that we ran there right ahead of the draft over to. So great job by us. And here is us reacting to the pick that actually took place on round one draft night, Patrick Queen. But why are we here? We're here because the Ravens made their pick at 28. They stood Pat and they took Pat Queen, who you believe is the best inside linebacker. I do believe he's the best inside linebacker in this draft. The reason is number one, when I look at a linebacker, I look for uh, in this order, I look for uh, literally someone who backs the line sounds stupid, but they got to be, they got to be in, they got to be in run support first. And that, that comes from reading keys when a guard pulls and and you can get into me and get at me about fake pulls. And that's a whole thing as well. Uh, But you got to be able to understand in the first two steps of what an offensive lineman does, where the play is going, and that is high-level linebacking play. Number two, you have to be able to get off of blocks. You have to be able to stack and shed. You need to be able to stun a lineman with your hands and get them the hell off you, whether that's a push and a pull, whether that's a rip, whether that's slipping them, whatever you want to call it. 
then those are those are the two gown guys. Those guys can play against the run. Number three, are you adept in coverage? Do you understand what formations mean as far as routes? Um, are you a guy that can play man at the end? That's the cherry on top. If you can go play man coverage and cover a running back, cover a slot receiver, cover a tight end in man coverage, that's incredible. And if you just have a good feel for moving side to side, chasing laterally, running and hitting, you know, every guy in the NFL can do that. So people, I feel like overvalue that a little bit, but at the end of the day, Pat, I, Pat Queen's IQ is best in show. Uh, that, that, that first thing of being able to recognize in the first two steps of if alignment's exploding out of their stance and they're all moving in unison, that's going to be a zone blocking play. If you see a center and a guard pulling or a center and a tackle pulling or a guard and a tackle, that that's going to be a power concept. You're going to need to, to, to move your body and go wherever they're going and fill a gap. And then finally, Patrick Queen by PFF, according to them, Isaiah Simmons is the number one coverage linebacker, the honorable mention is none other than Patrick Queen. So I'm excited. I think that he checks all the boxes and being just 20 years old, not having a huge toll on his body. It's awesome. Perfect fit. And shout out to Mel Kuyper for nailing the Patrick Queen pick, predicting him to the Ravens in five out of five mock drafts. Interesting to kind of hear our thoughts there on a pick that is, uh, I would say panned out, but you know, Queen has had his uh, ups and downs this season and is not this sort of bang on sort of slam dunk first round prospect that, People seem to uh, have thought he was, and I think some people thought that he was going to have his struggles this season. He has, but he's also had some big games, including one against the Jaguars the other day. So uh, fun, you know, watching Patrick Queen's progress this season and uh, had plenty of I think we had a pick analysis for every single pick that took place. So also just wanted to throw in this uh, next one, I believe, for their second pick. And that was uh, running back J.K. Dobbins out of Ohio State, who's another player who's contributing mightily to this team, especially over the last couple games. And they're going to be relying on his legs down the stretch here for the uh, home stretch of the season. So here's our pick analysis from J.K. Dobbins on April 24th. All right. Welcome on back to another edition of the Baltimore Beatdown podcast. It is Saturday night. Uh, Saturdays are for the boys. Everybody knows that. Uh, April 24th. Uh, my name is Jake Luke. I am joined by Spencer Nathaniel Schultz, and we are here with a little mini pod for you to break down the Baltimore Ravens' newest draft pick, J.K. Dobbins, running back out of Ohio State at 55 overall. J.K. Dobbins is a versatile running back. He is experienced in gap, power, pulling guards. That's what that means versus zone, which is where no one pulls. Uh, the line steps in sync, moving in one direction. Uh, adept in pass pro, actually a bone crusher in pass pro, definitely a downhill back. Um, wouldn't say he's, you know, terribly dissimilar from Mark Ingram, but a guy who's been, I mean, all first team All-America, All-Big Ten, second team All-Big Ten, um, conference player of the week as a freshman. Mo I think he set records for most rushing yards in a season at Ohio State and as well as uh, most freshman rushing yards. Kids from Texas, so take that as you will. I think he had an injury as well in high school his senior year. But, yeah, I was not on board, and I'm not necessarily on board with taking a running back, uh, especially this high. But like we just said before we started recording, we're going to bitch about it now and love it in October when the kid is making moves. Yeah, there's no doubt about that. Um, I'll be honest, I haven't watched a ton of tape on him. I did see him a lot on TV, obviously, because you've got a lot of Ohio State on TV on Saturdays. So I liked what I saw from him. I think he was, uh, you know, like you said, kind of that bone crusher type of guy, very productive. Uh, I like it from that sense. Like I said, feels like a very future move. Mark Ingram is still going to be productive this year. 
Uh, maybe they try to get out of his contract, even though it's not that hefty next year. But a little weird considering Justice Hill in the picture for the long term. Gus Edwards, maybe not long for this team. Maybe they even move him this offseason. Who knows? But ultimately, I'd say I like it, but I'm not over the moon or anything about it. So another sort of pick analysis there that I thought was really fun to look back on, particularly with JK's contribution to this team. I think uh, between him and Queen, those two guys are the biggest contributors uh, from this draft so far. We've seen a little bit of pop from Duvernay, Prochet, Matabuke. Uh, a lot of A's there. Um, but uh, yeah, I mean, you know, a couple guys, but those were the two that I wanted to highlight as far as going back and checking out the pick analysis. So that's pretty much all we had from the draft. And after the draft sort of concluded, quarantine was kind of all we were looking at for the next couple of months. So we wanted to do some evergreen content, some fun stuff. So I think that it looks like the first thing that we cooked up was uh, this thing back in the day, the series that we were doing that I want to get going again at some point because it was really fun going back and watching old Ravens games. And the first one we started with was kind of a random out of the blue thing. It was a game that I just found scrolling YouTube one day. The full thing is on there. Cut up into a uh, pretty concise, I think, two and a half hours that you can sit down and watch. Uh, Titans at Ravens 2003 wild card kind of last stand of Steve McNair for the Titans, Eddie George still in the picture, Anthony Wright starting at QB for the Ravens, a really kind of fun back and forth game. I won't spoil the ending for you because if you didn't watch it or listen to this episode, I would encourage you to go and uh, do so look up Ravens Titans, 2003 wildcard game in Baltimore, and uh, then go back and listen to our podcast back in the day. Titans at Ravens. Oh, three wildcard from May 6, 2020 going to throw some audio in there uh, just for you guys to get a, a little bit of a, taste or feel from it if you uh, weren't a listener back in those days or if you missed it for whatever reason to uh, encourage you guys to go back and do so because it was fun it was me and Voss on this one had a, uh, a really good time chopping this game up with him so uh, be sure to uh, check out this clip and then the full episode if you haven't already and he's got a smile on his face right now facing third and about three McNair with time throws intercepted and Reed the second pick by that secondary Reed I got to imagine you just jumped out of your seat when that happened. Yeah, definitely. And then the other, the second half interception was exciting too. Yeah, definitely. That's my, that's my other guy. I mean, that one was freaking amazing. We'll obviously get to that. But yeah, so Reed, he gets McNair in the red zone, like you mentioned there. And Eddie George actually hurt while tackling Ed Reed. It's later determined to be a dislocated left shoulder. Yeah, I don't buy that. You don't dislocate a shoulder, pop it back in, and then start stiff-arming Ray Lewis with the same arm three plays later. But uh, I don't know. Maybe they were embellishing a little bit there. Maybe it's just the guys in the early 2000s were a lot tougher. Did you ever think about that? I don't think I've ever heard you make that point before. You know, that's a good point now that you mentioned that, Jake. You might be onto something with that one. Yeah, who, who could say that? All we know is that it leads to another three and out for the Ravens. I think I wanted to highlight this one specifically because it contained a second and long call with right under center, a full house formation with Alan Ricard and Chester Taylor behind him. The result was a false start, which is <laughs> Anderson, right? Was it Anderson with the false start? Or no, it was uh, Terry Jones. Yeah. Is that the Terry other Jones Jr.? The Alabama backup tight end that Alabama player that Ozzy couldn't couldn't pass on a on a uh, Alabama tight end in the mid rounds. He saw it as the second coming of him at tight end there. But so there you get just a little bit of a taste of what we were doing with the uh, back in the day series, kind of chopping up highlights of those games, going through them in a linear fashion. And like I said, no spoilers. So if you haven't watched that game, go back and do it. We wound up doing three of those in total, I believe. Twenty eleven 
uh, Joe Flacco to Torrey Smith against the Steelers uh, with, uh, you know, eight seconds ago. There's not really much of a spoiler opportunity for that one. Uh, we did that one a couple of weeks after the first one that we did, and then we did the Torrey Smith game against the Patriots from a year after that in 2012. Really, really fun series. Like I said, I'm you know tinkering with the idea of bringing it back as we get into the offseason here, and uh, who knows what's going to happen with our content schedule, so it might be fun to get that back into the rotation and uh, get Spenny and Kyle and all these guys involved. Really, really was you know a, a fun time doing that back in the day thing, so really liked it and hope you guys, like I said, if you missed it, go back and... Uh, you know, take a look, see what happens. But uh, <laughs> coming up next is uh, a little bit of a fun, funny situation that at the time, you know, we were able to sort of laugh at it and sort of brush it off a little bit, though I think for many people, myself included, there was uh, some lingering thoughts of like, okay, maybe there's something a little more serious going on here. And that kind of wound up being the case with Earl Thomas. Uh, after all that happened with him in training camp and him sort of getting himself ousted by the team and, you know, sort of winding up in the crosshairs of some of the coaches and his teammates. Uh, it's easy to sort of forget that he had this whole other incident uh, back from uh, early May. It looks like May 12th is when we recorded the episode where he had that whole thing with his wife and his brother, Seth. And, uh, you know, me sitting here right now by myself, I'm, I'm not really going to go too much into the details on it. I'll leave that to us from our, our episode back on May 12th. Interesting bit of news that came down last week. I believe it was last Wednesday night. Uh, Ravens safety, Earl Thomas. So going through the timeline, basically, I was sitting in bed. I think I had started Better Call Saul. I was on like episode one. And I'm just kind of settling in, relaxing. I'm like, yeah, you know, nothing's really going on. I'm scrolling Instagram and a video of shirtless Earl Thomas comes up. Um, Basically, he kind of... And I, he's always shirtless. He is, but like I sort of the way that he was talking to the camera, like I had my sound off or whatever, and I scrolled past it, I think, and then I did a double take. I was like, wait, what was he doing there? Why was that caption so long? He's always just like posting highlights with no caption. So I go back and I start watching it, and immediately my heart just sinks. I'm like, oh fuck. And I go and I tweet it out basically like a summary of what he had said, and people really started to pick it up and catch on to it. Uh, not to say that I was the first, of course, but I feel like I was one of them. Uh, crossed the t the uh, thousand mark on the Twitter account too, so shout out to me. Um, but yeah, he basically goes into this uh, situation about how he's pissed that TMZ got a hold of this news and they're going to be running it, and it's a situation, a altercation that took place between him and Nina, which I didn't even throw like his wife in there because I didn't want to presume anything. But immediately, your mind just goes to Ray Rice when he puts that out. Mine jumped to Tyreek Hill because it was just last year. And I think it was right around the exact same time, like May-ish, right at post-draft. I might be wrong on that, but I just jumped to that, and I was just like, oh. I just immediately knew that this was something I'm not going to be, not going to stop hearing about. And I, of course, assumed the worst, like you were saying, but I was just not excited for whatever was to come. Um, it ended up being so preposterously sounding seeming fictitious like a written story almost the actual event that occurred but i was anticipating something way worse as far as something that he had done um and it, it it also just always throws me for a whirlwind because of two things that there's videos of this and the way that the media can get a hold of something and tmz can get a hold of something and then thinking about how it might have been you know in the 80s and 90s with a similar situation 
And then I also always just jumped to Des Bryant's situation where allegedly Jerry Jones paid seven figures to suppress a video of him in a domestic situation or a uh, not great seeming situation. And those two things always run through my head whenever something like this happens. But I was just so immediately disappointed that the Ravens were going to have to hear something like this. And then all of the kind of crap that Earl Thomas had taken from the Titans game and the stiff arm and him. him been, saying, a t- been a tough couple months for your boy. Yes, has been a tough couple months on the old Twitter sphere. Um, but in the end, you know, weird situation. But it's it's crazy. I mean, you never know. It doesn't seem like the the NFL has been out to get the Ravens, maybe. Like, they, you, there used to be the rumors like that and how uh, Tagliabue wanted a museum and didn't like the franchise after. But uh, crazy Rose, Roselle was the same way with the Colts, and then Tagliabue did the same thing with the uh, blocking Baltimore getting an expansion team. So we can throw that around as rumors, but, I mean, it's actually just kind of fact. Although I do think Rog has been pretty pro-Baltimore, to be fair. 100%. He's, he's definitely been uh, pro-Baltimore. And From the I area that, to a certain degree, I, th- I believe. Yeah, and also I think he, I think the NFL really likes the Lamar Jackson experience, and I feel like they have pushed him into the spotlight and say what you will, but I think that they have a way of manipulating kind of superstars and success to a degree, whether big or small, I don't know, but I think that they've definitely propelled Baltimore. Um, but but just having that resurface was was not fun and uh, yeah so i mean he so he puts that out there tmz i believe maybe an hour or two later raven's twitter completely on fire at this point um just speculating about what it could be some people trying to say how it's maybe not going to be a big deal don't invoke the ray rice thing here quite yet uh some other people kind of worrying the worst and then uh tmz leaks headline cops earl thomas nfl star held at gunpoint by wife ellipses in blow up over alleged cheating. So I start reading this and huh? uh? we got to get a soundboard to get the uh, Tim, the tool man Taylor thing, because as soon as like, I'm maybe a paragraph in and it's just, uh? so NFL star Earl Thomas is lucky to be alive after cops say his wife held a loaded gun less than a foot from his head after she allegedly caught him cheating with another woman. So that's the, first block and then it goes into the story about how I believe the long and short of it is that uh, Nina gets home uh, some sort of fight ensues because she's angry about Earl maybe drinking a little bit too much Uh, he hightails it out of the house doesn't want to deal with it Uh, I think he goes to meet up with his brother Seth at uh, Seth picked him up so Seth picks him up they go to this other house in Austin Texas where he lives in the offseason with two women And the way that the story was circulating was that Earl and Seth proceed to have a foursome in the same bed with these two women. That's about as cleanly as I can put it right now. Twitter ran with it to the point where it it was like, there was like not even a girl there almost. They like wanted to say like, it was like two brothers in bed. And there's that clip of Key and Peele. I don't know if our followers have seen that or if you or our listeners have, or if you've seen that, but there's a clip of Key and Peele where they're partaking in one woman together and they're the guy's like, come on, bro, give me a high five. And then he like grabs his hand and he's like making eye contact with them and doing that whole thing. And Twitter, I mean, Twitter had a field day with this. It was, it was really funny. Like I got, if like the thing about this situation is like, I'm just really glad that it wasn't like another serious thing. And like once this article comes out where you read through it and essentially 
So, yeah, like we mentioned, there was the, the inaccuracy of they're having this, like, foursome in the same bed. It actually wound up that they were in two different rooms, uh, Earl with one woman, Seth with another, but... Uh, there's there's one key letter that is a word, I suppose, technically, that was not used, and, and a phrase. It, it said, Earl and Seth were in bed. Yeah, that's what it was. That's why people ran with it. I was I thought the same thing. Bed. No, yeah, I thought the same thing. I was like, oh no, like this is uh looking bad for him. Wound up not being that, but Nina tracks where he is with his Snapchat location. Fellas, watch out. She you logged don't... into his Snapchat and then that's where she like caught wind of the situation. I mean, the the part of it that is ridiculous like when you tell when you tell Oh, just the one part of this that's ridiculous. Like, as a whole, like, the part of it that tickles me is that, like, Earl is, like, 30. Yeah. and He I'm, just turned 31. Yeah. So, I'm, like, imagining, you know, I've heard, I, there used to be some crazy stuff that would happen with, like, girls that you know and guys that you're friends with. And there's a cheating situation when you're, like, 19 or 16 or whatever. And, like, the girl's, like, ah! And the guy's, like, rah, 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 rah. But at this point, it's, it's. Uh, it's just a little preposterous. Uh, it, it's uh, it's some young bull stuff. Yeah, so essentially, so she tracks to where he is, takes a gun with her. In the spirit of trying to scare him, she says, she unloads it, brings it into the house, and confronts him in the bed, I guess, with this other woman. They get into this sort of fight, uh, you know, I guess verbal altercation. She points it at his head, not realizing that there is actually a bullet in the chamber. So he came... Very close to eating it, just right then and there. But I guess he, like, wrestles the gun away from her, runs out into the yard. Cops have already been alerted. I guess it was a large fight uh, that the neighbors maybe were clued into. Uh, and then Nina gets arrested. Let me see what the exact charges were. I don't want to mess this up. Burglary. I know burglary. Okay, so so after speaking with everyone, cops ultimately arrested Nina and both members of her posse. So she had a posse. That's kind of sick. <laughs> Nina was booked for burglary of a residence with intent to commit aggravated assault with a deadly weapon, family violence, and later bonded out. So that's what she was uh, charged with there. Um, and ultimately, like, that's basically the extent of it. And it sounds like there this happened over a month ago. Another wrinkle to it is that Earl did not inform the Ravens, uh, which they don't sound overly pleased about, understandably, but... So this happened over a month ago. He confirmed in that video that he initially leaked that they're already talking and um, he's seen the kids and everything and they're kind of working through it, I guess, at this point. But yeah, like you said... It sounded just, like it might not be a first-time occurrence. Uh, yeah. But yeah, you so you said that um, it's just like young guy type of shit and like I'm totally with you. Like I, as even when Earl first signed with the Ravens, I guess when he was 29 last year, I noticed right away on his social media that he was a little bit of a party boy, uh, which... I had no clue before. No, neither did I. I no thought no clue that he was. Uh, I mean, he let whatever that speaks to. You know, I don't. I, I'm going to be doing the same things. I wish I could do the things that he did. Like it's I just it's just based on his reputation from Seattle as like this super hard worker, who's serious, just, like, very serious. very serious, and down to kind of just down to business. Like you wouldn't expect that necessarily, but you know his play didn't drop off at all, and you know he did what he had to do on the field and in the practice room and in the meetings, presumably. So. Maybe he's just kind of that work hard, play hard type of guy. And plus the whole thing with Brandon Williams, like 
being deathly serious that why the why the hell did he sit out against the Browns? It's sort of reminiscent of I'm not even caught up on the last I know what you're gonna say. Yeah, I'm not even caught up on the last dance right now, but it is kind of reminiscent of that MJ, you know, Earl's a Jordan guy. Intensity is a teammate. Intensity is a teammate, intensity and just everything he does just, you know, kind of burns it at both ends. And uh this time it wound up burning him in the ass a little bit and he's uh gonna be paying the consequences in his personal life. But so ran a little bit longer on that uh, sort of highlight than I did with the other ones, but uh, just a really preposterous, funny situation that we now have even more color on after the whole incident with Thomas and camp and him getting cut right before the season. Just I uh, think it's kind of funny to look back on that as sort of the opening salvo uh, in the Earl Thomas saga, as far as uh, the Ravens ultimately getting rid of him in August. But uh, yeah, <laughs> Like I said, sorry if that ran a little long, but I was just really fascinated listening back to it, listening to Spencer and I's takes on it. And uh, just the fact that it kind of was, you know, something that we were able to laugh at. Obviously, it wound up being something that sort of, you know, burned the team a little bit later on when his uh, his antics wound up sort of spilling over into his professional life. But uh, in that moment, especially with all that had been going on, we were in quarantine for a couple of months at that point. A story like that dropping and us sort of being able to take this sort of lighthearted tack to it. Uh, I thought it was kind of fun, and it was fun to listen back to. I hope you guys enjoyed it. Uh, shifting gears a little bit away from that, as we uh, are kind of coming to a close here on uh, part one of this, I've decided, is going to be a look at our What If Guys episode from May 15th of 2020. So this was kind of just a randomly fun one that we wound up doing. It was in that sort of content suck post-draft type thing, and uh, just pulling ideas out of the bottom of the barrel, basically, and... Uh, this idea came to me from another podcast that I listened to, No Laying Up. Uh, their golf podcast do a great job. And they did a, a pod about what if guys, you know, guys that what if things had broken right for them or what if circumstances were different? What could they have been? So we looked back on uh, a couple of different players um, in Ravens franchise history that we wanted to give that treatment to. And I remember even when releasing it, this episode did really well. People seemed to really enjoy it and uh, engage with us on social media about it. So I'm going to Go ahead and throw a segment of that in there. This one specifically is talking about the 2017 Week 17 Tyler Boyd game. Uh, Ravens get knocked out of the playoffs, send the Bills in, and uh, kind of looking at it from the context of what would happen in that 2018 offseason if they win that game. Do they get Lamar Jackson? Is Joe Flacco still in Baltimore? Just a, a topic that I'm pretty eminently fascinated by. And, uh, you know, maybe it's just me doing my spin zone thing about how losing that game was actually a good thing, but... Uh, I think the evidence sort of bears it out, and we uh, chopped that up right here for you guys. Were you wait? Were you at this game? No, that was uh, one of the few games I haven't gone to. I was in the Poconos with a bunch of friends at a cabin because it was New Year's. Um, wish I went, but yeah, my my mom and my brother went, and they were like, it was the coldest I've ever been in my life. Yeah, terrible. But the, yeah, so they they do mount the comeback. Tucker kicks a field goal, and then Alex Collins has a fourth down touchdown. I actually saw that touchdown on a TV. At the gas station where we that touchdown was dirty. It was, yeah. So he he like starts going left and then he cuts back and runs the other way right. Gets the twenty four twenty. I saw that on the TV while we were waiting for our car at the gas station we parked it at, and then we're basically listening to it uh, for a good amount of time. But we get home in time for them to see Flacco hit Mike Wallace late touchdown pass. Eight minutes and forty eight seconds to go. They're up twenty seven to twenty. So what could go wrong, right? What could go wrong? Yeah, so we know what happens. It's easy to forget, though, like the ref's kind of involvement on that critical drive with Boyd. So I was reading back, and Garrett Downing wrote up after the game, 
The Bengals also got a pair of first downs because Brandon Carr was flagged for defensive pass interference against wide receiver Brandon LaFell and cornerback Marlon Humphrey drew a holding call while defending Green. The holding call was particularly significant because it wiped off an interception by Weddle that would have ended the game. I know I jumped right in front of him and I felt like we kind of just both collided, but the ref told me I pulled him down, Humphrey said. I have to see it on film, but when the flag is thrown, the refs are always right. Disappointing, disappointing, disappointing game. Um, so, yeah, let's say, you know, let's say that Tyler Boyd does not catch that pass or, you know, the Ravens end up winning that game. That would have put them into the wild card as the wild card. So they go to Jacksonville for that, the really good Jaguars team in 2017. So my question isn't really like what happens if they made the playoffs because the Ravens, I don't think, were nearly a Super Bowl contender that season. In fact, they had already gotten their uh, shit pushed in by the Jaguars earlier uh, in the London game that year. Mm-hmm. So I think they lose that game. But my question is, what if they win that game regardless? Like, how does the 2018 offseason look? Because then they go and they get Jackson in the draft. Right. That's a playoff berth for Flacco again. If it is, that looked good. That's like that's like one of those splitting hairs of easily like could could be like we really like Jackson, you know, great prospect, but we're just gonna ride it out with Flacco, go even harder in that. And not direction. for yeah, like not for nothing, Flacco actually had a decent second half to that year, like enough yeah, where he did. You, you could reasonably sell yourself on him. And I mean, his his receivers were dog shit, that absolutely the, horrible. Yeah, so that was like the Macklin year, I think. Perryman was supposed to take another step forward, but he took five just terrible steps back that might that might have been the one of the years paramount had like a pretty good year i can't remember if it was that year or the year before i think so, like, he had like 500 yards and a couple long touchdowns i like think solid. so i think that was 2016 when he was in his second year because he missed his rookie year he came back in 16 had like a decent year and it's like okay yeah we can count on this guy we got Macklin or right. we got mike wallace uh this guy and then they signed Macklin late in the process but it's like this guy's definitely going to be at least a pretty good number three for us uh with all the talent that he has but he just did not have it that year, I think. Yeah, because that was the year I was looking through it, and that was when they lost to the, tit- to the Titans, and he had like five drops, one of which wound up being like a pick or something. It was just a really ugly year for him. So, yeah, Mike Wallace was like the top option that year for sure. And, uh, yeah, he was the only one that kind of did anything in that game for them on offense other than Collins. And, yeah, it kind of kind of my gut tells me they would have stuck with Flacco if they won that game. Yeah, that would have made a lot of sense. And then it's like, oh, well, Flacco got you to the playoffs, you know, draft Hayden Hurst and freaking what Ridley or more something of the sort, get him two weapons, see what it is. Then he probably ends up hurting himself again. And then that leads into potentially an entire rebuild as opposed to the, you know, segments they broke it into year by year, kind of reassembling the team as Flacco is still the quarterback and remaining competitive. So very easily that game could have been a blessing. That's something you've always said. That game could have been more of a blessing than a curse. You know, if Lamar Jackson's able to win a Super Bowl in Baltimore, thank you to the Bengals for thank you to Tyler Boyd. Thank you to Andy Dalton. And Andy Dalton got thanked a lot. He got like what 80 grand and because that that was the game that made the playoffs for the Bills. And then yeah. that was that broke their like their what, streak. Nine, they had like 19 year playoff drought or something of the sort. Yeah, there were like Bills players like crying in the locker room. So that also, what if that would have been, you know, a devastating blow to Buffalo? That would have been, you know, year 20, I think, of that. So huge implications off of that Tyler Boyd play. But in the end, yeah, as far as that actual year, they didn't have a roster ready to go deep in the playoffs. I mean, that Jacksonville team, that defense would have crushed them again, in my opinion. Uh, They just got their asses kicked by them. But 
sometimes you see them rebound and do things like that. And, and Flacco, you know, people will be like, oh, well, Flacco's magical in the playoffs. But week 17 was the playoffs. That was a playoff game, literally. And then Flacco did end up with the ball after that Tyler Boyd touchdown with, I mean, enough time to do something. We saw the mile high miracle and ends up, I think, like. He was like checking it down to like. Uh, ben think, Watson short of the sticks. I remember that one. Yeah, I think that was the last offensive play they had. Right. So I think that was better in the end. But, you know, what if is 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 Joe Flacco still the quarterback of the Ravens if that happens? Like, you got to think no, but like maybe is the weird thing about it. Like he easily could if they won that game, he easily could have been the starter last year still. Yeah, because it's only been two years. Right. And he and he was on the team been, the year he, after that. He still was under contract through last year. Yeah, it's so it's weird to think about. I think that's an interesting one because you know, a lot of people maybe think about that game negatively. I certainly have my negative thoughts on it, especially having been there for a little bit. And uh, yeah, it was it was a pretty miserable experience, but uh, you can just kind of have that. And then if anyone tries to come at you about it, just be like, hey, that's the game that got us Lamar Jackson. And up next and last here for uh, this first episode of this uh, holiday special that we're putting together here is our chat from May 23rd with our guy Emery Hunt of the Football Game Plan. Uh, he's a guy who we've come to uh, become somewhat close with uh, in a professional sense. Really smart, sharp dude. One of the first guests that we've had on this pod as well. So another favorite, a guy who's super in the know, very plugged in. Big fan of Lamar Jackson, has a lot of good stuff on him. And I uh, wanted to close out this episode with him sort of dishing on what he thought his outlook for Lamar coming into 2020 was going to be. I think he's uh, right on in some spots. There are other spots where maybe it didn't totally work out that way, but uh it's been a weird year for the Ravens, so uh, I think listening back to this is pretty fascinating. And uh, for the most part, Emery's pretty bang on about uh, Lamar's projection coming into this season and how things wound up. Right, and being multiple is very important for the growth of this offense. And speaking of which, I mean, we had you on last year, and you had probably the highest praise of Lamar Jackson of anyone, including us, who both were strong. I, I, I predicted you know, him to be maybe a dark horse for MVP, but you were adamant that he was going to be the elite player that he turned out to be this past season. What would another leap in 2020 look like to you? Uh, how does it end up looking on the field? What are the differences and where does that leave the Ravens? I think the the, the biggest leap you want to see from Lamar is uh, knowing when and where to be aggressive. And I think, you know, at, in his rookie year, it was more about just getting out there and just playing and, you know, trying to, you know, then this year you saw him go out there and develop more as far as within the offense. They, they were, okay, we're going to allow him to go out there and just throw it 30 times a game. And I felt like at times, and you tend to see this a lot with, uh, you know, with black quarterbacks, they want to prove that, oh, I can stay in the pocket. Just play your game. You know, be unapologetically you. And so at times, he hung in there a little bit too long to try to make a play in the pocket in the pocket. Just go out there and ball out and just play. And so I think you'll see this year him be a little bit more judicious with uh, his decisions as far as, you know what? That's not open. I'll run, get out of bounds. I won't try to do too much. I'll run, pick up 20 yards because I'm fast and everybody slide. Or I may hit the check down this time and let the running back do do work on these. In you know new slot receivers we added that those guys do the work so you'll see a little bit more of a of a patient game from Lamar I believe a little bit more I trust my guys to make more plays than anything I won't try to you know make every play the highlight play you know if it happens great 
Um, but now year four, I don't have to, or year three, I don't have to do that. So, you know, I can, I would feel comfortable dumping the ball off to my guys short. I feel comfortable to really throwing the ball away, even though I know my throwaways will, people will say I'm inaccurate uh, because I threw the ball away. But, you know, if it was Kirk Cousins, they said that was a great decision. So even though I know I'm going to get, you know, killed by the media for throwing the ball away, I'm going to throw the ball away because it's the best play for right now. I don't have to like try to force a scramble and run around and maybe lose yards. So I think you'll see a little bit more patient trusting of his, the weapons he has around him. He will now feel like he has to make the play. There's a bunch of guys out there that can make the play for him. So the numbers will probably look the same, but the efficiency, I believe, will be a little bit better, which was great last year. I think it'll be better this year, and the Ravens' offense will still be top five. Okay, guys, that is going to do it for this part one of the uh, holiday special that we're throwing together here. Going to try and release this on Thursday, the 23rd, so uh, part two probably going to be coming out next week uh, on Wednesday as well, so uh, stay tuned for that. Uh, This part covered up through May, I believe, so going to be picking it up uh, starting in June uh, next week when we release the, the next episode. So really hope you guys enjoyed this trip down memory lane. It was really fun for me uh, and obviously going to be fun as I continue to do it and continue to put it together. And I hope you guys will tune in next week to uh, round things out here. It's been a really fun year on the podcast. Uh, I hope it's been fun for you guys. Obviously, you know, kind of a tough year in a lot of other respects, but uh, I think we've made the most of it. And I think uh, you guys have done well. You're a resilient bunch and we appreciate your business. So before I get out of here, you can follow me on Twitter at Jake Luke. That is L-O-U-Q-U-E. Follow the show at Podcast Beatdown and uh, give Spencer a follow while you're at it at Ravens for Dummies. That's the number four in the middle there. Talk to you guys soon and peace out. All right, thanks a lot. Appreciate you guys. See you later. All right, God bless. <laughs> Hell yeah. <laughs>